Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here today. A few weeks ago, Judge Alito's draft of an opinion concerning Roe v. Wade was leaked to the press and to the media. Since that time, a massive cultural backlash has shaken the entire country. The pro-life segment of the culture has responded with a sense of anxious anticipation as to what this will mean. The pro-choice segment of the culture has responded with a sense of dramatic defiance. Without a doubt, abortion is one of those hot-button issues that is plaguing our culture today. The statistics are sobering. Roughly 908,000 abortions were performed in the United States in 2020. 60 million plus legal abortions have occurred in the United States since Roe v. Wade was passed back in 1973. 40% of minors who have an abortion do so without parental consent. Worldwide, over 42 million abortions occur every year. Abortion was the leading cause of death in 2021. It wasn't the coronavirus, not by a long shot. It is estimated that one-third of women have had an abortion. Now, all of these statistics cannot hide the fact that real people with real feelings and real hurts are affected by abortion. A young lady contacted Billy Graham's ministry and shared this story. She said, I'm single and pregnant, and I don't know what to do. My boyfriend abandoned me when he found out I was pregnant. I've never gotten along very well with my parents. I'll probably get an abortion, although I don't want to. And then she closed her little letter or email with this, pray I'll do the right thing. The church must speak to this volatile cultural issue. We must have an answer for young ladies that, uh, like the lady that wrote to Billy Graham ministry, silence from the pulpit is a powerful tool of the enemy. In that silence, Satan spews his lies into the post-abortive woman's heart. His desire is to convince her that she is ensnared in an endless loop of condemnation by God and that she is beyond hope. Pastors must not avoid this issue, even though some may accuse them of being judgmental, even though some may accuse them of political bias, or some may even accuse them of ripping a scab off an old wound and causing needless pain. Don't miss the last request from this young lady who contacted Billy Graham's ministry. Pray, I'll do the right 
thing. If you were advising her, what would you say to her? In other words, what is the right thing? Now, obviously, there are two competing, contrasting views that we can operate from. We can operate from the secular view of this issue, or we can operate from the biblical view of this issue. Now, the secular view of life can be reduced down to the mantra that is so prevalent in the pro-choice demonstrations that are taking place across our nation. We see it on their placards. We, we hear it in their voices. My body, my choice. My body, my choice. In 1992, in the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy made this alarming statement. I quote, he said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In a March 2022 Pew Research survey, a majority of adults said that abortion should be legal in some cases and illegal in others. So the idea that the pro-choice and the pro-life segments of our society are neatly packaged into two diverse, distinct groups is a myth. Furthermore, one in three adults say that human life begins at conception in that they turn around and say that the decision to have an abortion belongs solely to the woman. John Piper explained the implication of this secular view of life. He said, and I quote, it is illegal to take the life of the unborn if the mother wants the baby. But it is legal to take the life of the unborn if she doesn't. In the first case, the law treats the fetus as a human with rights. In the second case, the law treats the fetus as a new, no human with no rights. Humanness, that is existence as a human being, is decreed by the will of the mother. Going back to the young lady who contacted Billy Graham's ministry, pray that I'll do the right thing. If you were advising her today, she's young, she's pregnant, she doesn't get, get along well with her parents, her boyfriend has abandoned her, she seems to have nowhere to turn. What would you tell her to do? What would you advise her to do? Would you advise her to follow the logic of the secular view of life? Well, there is another option. And that is the biblical view of life. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 
excuse me, Psalm 139. David wrote this psalm under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In, in this psalm, David stacks attribute upon attribute upon attribute of God and, and just overflows in worship and praise to God for who he is. In fact, he highlights three of the main attributes of God. He highlights God's omniscience. The fact that God knows everything. There's nothing that God does not know. There's nothing that God does not know about you. There's nothing that God does not know about the the baby in the mother's womb. There's nothing that God does not know. God never learns anything. But he also, David also highlights the omnipresence of God. The fact that God can be everywhere at the same time. He can be at the bottom of the sea. He can be at the farthest reaches of the universe. He can be in a mother's womb. God can be everywhere at the same time. But he also highlights the omnipotence of God. The fact that God is all-powerful. In fact, one of the recurring themes that we find in the Bible is the fact that God is all-powerful. God is almighty. Nothing is impossible with God. And these three great attributes of God saturate Psalm 139, written by the hand of David, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. These words do not reflect David's opinion They reflect the truth of the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God. In Psalm 139, verse 13, David wrote these words. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me, where church? In my mother's womb. God reveals to David how he had created him and caused him to develop in his mother's womb. There was no evolutionary process in play here. It was the creator God creating David in his mother's womb. It was God who formed his inward parts. Now, literally, literally, in the Hebrew, it's God who formed his kidneys, that's literally. You got to understand then in the Hebrew mind, the kidneys were the innermost part of a person. We, we talk about the heart. We, we say to our, our, our wife or, or our husband, I love you with all my heart. If you were a Hebrew, you might say to your wife, I love you with all my kidneys. It's the same concept. It's the innermost being. It's the, it's the most sacred innermost part of the human being. And David says that that God formed me in my mother's womb. He formed my inward parts. In Genesis 1.27, we looked at this verse last week. We are reminded that when God created David in his mother's womb, he created David in the image of God. Unlike any part of the animal kingdom. Man is the absolute 
crown of God's creation. And David was created in the image of God. So is everyone else who is born. Now, in Genesis 1.27, the Bible says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we talked about transgenderism last week. Today, we talk about how this applies to the issue of life, the sanctity of life. As the creator of life, God has the rights of ownership over the baby, not the mother. God created the baby. God owns the baby. Not the woman who is pregnant or the man who impregnated her. The child in the womb belongs to God, and that child must be viewed as a gift from God. You say, Pastor, where do you get that children are a gift from God? I get it out of the Bible. In Psalm 127, verse 3, the Bible says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. A pamphlet published in 1951, entitled The Gift of Life, contains some great advice about human sexuality and the sanctity of life. It stated, and I quote from 1951, the gift of life is shown to us with the birth of each new baby. If one of the new male sperm meets and unites with the egg cell, a new life begins. Now, you would expect something like that to be written in 1951. However, you would not expect that to be written by Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood, the leading abortion provider in America today, wrote that in 1951. It's a very pro-life statement. So where does this creation of new life take place? Well, David reveals God's truth when he wrote, you wove me in my mother's womb. From the moment of conception, God oversees the development of the child in the mother's womb. The secular view, on the other hand, insists that the baby is a glob of tissue that a mother can decide to remove like a bad appendix. Randy Alcorn made the following observation about the beginning of life. When does life begin? That seems to be the core issue that is being debated across our nation today. When does life begin? There are some who believe that life does not begin until the baby is born. But the Bible indicates that life begins at conception. When the sperm and the egg meet and, and the zygote forms, that is the beginning of life. And that seems to be exactly what God is revealing to David here in our text. Randy Alcorn said, I quote, it is scientifically inaccurate 
to say a human embryo or a fetus is not a human being simply because he is, an, he is at an earlier stage than an infant. This is like saying that a toddler is not a human being because he's not yet an adolescent. Does someone become more human as he gets bigger? Something non-human does not become human or more human by getting older or bigger. Whatever is human is human from the beginning or it can never be human at all. And that is so true. That's just good, plain old common sense. The baby in the mother's womb has been created by God and for God and belongs to God. Within the first month after conception, a baby's first nerve cells have formed. And the face begins to take shape. Blood cells begin to develop and the tiny heart beats 65 times a minute by the end of the fourth week. At this point, the baby is just one-fourth of an inch long. By the end of the third month, the baby is fully formed. He or she can open and close their fist and mouth and is a mere four inches long. David didn't understand all the intricacies of these details that the Holy Spirit was revealing to him. But he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had created him and watched over his development in his own mother's womb. That truth stirred his heart. In fact, in verse 14, Psalm 139, 14 David wrote, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. When David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that word fearfully speaks to a, a, a state of astonishment, a, a state of awe, a, a state of reverence for God. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God fashions every baby in his image. He makes him to be unique and special. Human life is sacred and should be treated with reverence and awe. The thought of God, their creator, being intimately involved in his development as a baby motivated David to worship God. He believed in a big God. Do you believe in a big God? I think a lot of the problems we have in our culture today is because we have adopted a diminished view of God. We have downsized God and we've upsized ourselves. And that is a fatal flaw for us as a culture and for us as a church. So I ask you, do you believe in a big, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God? Or is your God too small? In Psalm 139, 15, David wrote, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. 
The word frame here refers to David's skeletal system. You, you see, it was God who created his bones and his joints in his mother's womb. And the Bible refers to him being created in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Now, that's certainly not saying that David was created somewhere in a hole in the ground somewhere. That's not what it's talking about. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the womb that David has been referring to over and over again in this text. So God skillfully creates the baby in the womb. He knits the child together to make a beautiful life. Many people don't like themselves. They wish they were taller. They wish they were stronger. They wish they were thinner. They wish they had blonde hair. They wish they had dark hair. They wish they had any hair at all. They wish they were more athletic. They wish they were more musically inclined. I want to say something to you. You are created by God. And God does not make any junk. He doesn't. He made you just the way he wanted you to be. Look at verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. You know what's neat in, in our current technology? Life choices. We have them here today, our representatives here, right here today. The crisis pregnancy center for, for Memphis, they now have technology where a mother can look inside the womb and see that baby developing at a young, young, young stage. And you know what most mothers do in a situation like that? They don't abort their baby. But David didn't have, a, didn't have that technology available to him. But see, he believed God. He believed the word of God. And David said, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book, now hold on to your seats. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. You know what God knew about David? David even as he was forming him in the mother's womb, God knew that he was going to be the king of Israel. God knew the, the failures and the mistakes and the sins that David would commit. God knew, God knew that, 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 that one day David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself, would sit on David's throne and rule forever and ever and ever. God knew all of that. God knew the moment he would be born. God knew the moment he would die. I hope and pray that you don't fall into the fallacy of adopting a diminished view of God. I pray that every person within the sound of my voice would realize that God is omnipotent, that God is omnipresent, that God is omniscient. Verse 17. 
I'll tell you, it'll change your life. So David is speaking of his unique individuality from the first moments of his existence in the womb, from the moment of conception. God has a plan for each child he fashions in the mother's womb. No one has the right to interfere with God's plan for the child in the womb. No one. We don't have the right to play God over the lives of babies in the womb. That's the biblical view. So we've looked at the secular view. We've looked at the biblical view. And we see that these views are, are, are competing against us. There's a great contrast between these two views. And I can tell you this, if I were advising this young lady who wrote to Billy Graham's ministry, I would, number one, I would pray for her. Number two, I would let her know that the church is there for her. And I would encourage her to give birth to her baby, even though it may cause financial, relational, and emotional hardships. John Piper said something that really got my attention. He said this, I quote, doing the right thing will never ruin your life. Hey, that's true in a lot of different areas, right? It's not just in the, the life issue. That, that's true in a lot of different areas. Doing the right thing will never ruin your life. I, I pray that, that everybody within the sound of my voice will have an unruined life because you choose to do the right thing. Now, listen. With these competing views, the secular view and the biblical view, we have to decide who we're going to believe. And I'm telling you, my friend, nobody's truth trumps God's truth. Nobody. I don't care who they are. I don't care how intelligent they are. I don't care how sophisticated they are. I don't care how many degrees they have behind their name. I'm telling you, nobody's truth trumps God's truth. Do you remember Ethel Waters? She was a great gospel singer. And she would, she would go to Billy Graham Crusades and, and she would sing, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Not just, Cliff, not just uh, what's the other guy's name? Cliff Barrow. Not just Cliff Barrow. But Ethel Waters sang that. And I'm telling you, God used her all over this world. But did you know that Ethel Waters was conceived in the womb of her 13-year-old mother when her mother was raped? But her mo mother chose life. She chose to operate with a biblical view rather than a secular view. And the world has been blessed by Ethel Waters. Now, I can tell you this. 
I can tell you that Ethel Waters' young mom, 13 years old, 14 years old, 15 years old, I guarantee she had no clue that her daughter would be used by God the way her daughter was used by God. And I'm sure it was hard. I'm sure there were financial difficulties. I'm sure there were times when she wondered how in the world she would provide for her daughter. But I tell you, my friend, I tell you this, you never, never ruin your life by doing the right thing. Life is a sacred gift from God. Here's the thought I want to drop in your heart. It probably won't surprise you. Here's the thought. I want you to carry it with you. Do the right thing. See, I told you you wouldn't be surprised. Do the right thing. We must cherish life and we must do everything within our power to protect the unborn, to come alongside the women who bear them and to promote the biblical view of life. This pulpit must not be silent about these hot button issues that affect our culture and our lives. We must... We must speak the truth in love and with grace. So what should be our response this morning? I'm sure that within the sound of my voice, there are women who bought into the secular view of life at one, at one point. You got pregnant. You caved to the pressure, and you aborted your baby. Or, or there's a man here today, and you forced your girlfriend or your wife to get an abortion because you didn't want to fool with a baby at the time. And for years now, for years, those decisions have been eating away at you like cancer. And you're wondering if God could ever forgive you. I want you to watch this video. Watch this video. There's not a day that goes by where I don't think about having lost a child. I think that there are days that are definitely harder. Of course, when the anniversary of the abortion comes up, that's a hard time of year. And Mother's Day is always hard for me. And I think it's especially hard because I made the decision to take my child's life, and I deal with that grief, um, the grief of having lost a child, but the grief of having made the choice. I was 17 when I got pregnant, and I was just terrified of what people would think. I was afraid of the consequences of caring to term, but even more than that, I think I was afraid of what people would think of me. When I was going through a post-abortion program for women who had had abortions, one of the leaders asked me if I could say anything to my child, what would I say? And my first thought was, I'm sorry. But then the more that I thought about it, the more I realized that what I wanted to say was, I love you. And I think that that was the first time the reality of God loving me simply because I was His child really sank in. The gospel to me is Jesus taking every punishment that I should deserve. Um, 
which is death and an eternity uh, in hell and internal separation from God. And that is what I deserved. Um, but he promised that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of that truth, I can stand in that and I can know that he died for my sins and he has covered me with his blood. And in him, I am good enough. I made the decision to be baptized and it was actually the nine year anniversary of the date that I had had an abortion that I was baptized. And so now I get to look back and say, that's the anniversary date, yes, of an abortion, but it's also the anniversary date of the day that I was buried with Christ and raised to new life. And so I look at that as, as being a, in remembrance of who I am um, because of Christ's grace upon me. I think I'll probably always wrestle with needing the approval of people, but I know the truth that in Christ I have everything that I need and that I'm sufficient in Him because of Him and what He's done for me. Will God forgive you? Absolutely. I want you to listen to Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Becky, the young lady in that story, discovered that God would forgive her, that God would give her a new life, that she would not have to deal with the stigma of her abortion in this life or in eternity. You need to know that Jesus loves you, and he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for your abortion. He paid the penalty for every sin that you have ever committed or will ever commit in this life. And he paid the penalty with his blood. Did God accept Jesus' sacrifice for you? Absolutely. You know how I know that? Because God raised him from the dead. And I'm telling you, if you will repent of your sin. And receive Jesus by faith as your Savior and Lord. God will take every sin in your life, including abortion. And he will separate it from you as far as the east is from the west. And when you see God in eternity, you'll never have to answer for that sin or any other sin in your life. That's the love and grace and mercy of God. And oh, how I pray, how I pray that some of you will receive Jesus as your Savior this morning. Just do the right thing. But you say, Pastor, I had an abortion when I was a believer. After I received Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Well, you need to know that God will not toss you into the trash and give up on you. Listen, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's writing to believers now, not to unbelievers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this morning, if you're a believer 
and, and, and you committed that, that sin of abortion or, or you were a man and you coerced your girlfriend to have an abortion, confess it to God. Ask him to forgive you. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and make you right with him. Just do the right thing. But I want to say a, a brief word to those of you who have not had an abortion or you have not coerced someone to get an abortion. God created you in your mother's womb. I'm going to speak to teenagers and, and, and to, to young adults in this room. God created you in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You belong to God. You do not belong to yourself. You don't have the right to do whatever you want to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul wrote, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Now listen to this. Therefore, Paul wrote, glorify God in your body. So devote yourself to sexual purity. That's a surefire way to stay out of trouble. That's a surefire way to do the right thing. But I want to say a final word to the church. We must be a part of the solution, not the problem. That's why we support life choices. Hey, Sam, would you bring me my baby bottle? Now, obviously, we don't have any formula for these things. It's hard to find that today. But I want you to know that our church wants to help young women like Becky. We want to help them do the right thing. That's why we support life choices financially. We, we receive a world mission offering, and out of our world mission offering, a slice of that goes to life choices. A slice of it goes to Tennessee Baptist Children's Home, and, and they have uh, an adoption and a, and a fostering ministry, and so does life choices. And, and so we're going to pass these out today, and I, I want you to get one of these baby bottles, and we're going to receive an offering and you can bring it back in a couple of weeks, a week or two. But just pray about what God would have you to give to support life. And place it in here. Now, you just don't, you're not limited to giving change. You, you can put a check for a large amount of money in there, okay? You do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. But let's be a part of the answer, the solution. Let's do the right thing. I want to close with these verses. Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. 
No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. I tell you, folks, you never ruin your life when you do the right thing. So let's just decide right here today, we're going to do the right thing. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we realize, Lord, that this is a volatile issue in our culture. But, oh, God in heaven, I pray that we as a church would adopt and embrace the biblical view of life. And I pray you would use us to make a difference in young ladies like Becky. Oh, we love you. Have your way in our hearts this morning. Help us to do the right thing. In Jesus' name, amen.